Bitcoin, crypto, and batchable computing, could they be the keys to scaling the renewables sector? I sit down with experts to discuss the path to making renewables the primary, most affordable energy source. Welcome to Season 2 of Clean Integration, a Saluna podcast. I'm John Belazier, CEO of Saluna, and your host. In this episode, we're talking about digitalization and energy. My guest and energy expert, Peter Kelly Detweiler, and I will take a look at the interesting and increasing trend of the digital grid over the last decade, what problems it solves today, and consider how a decentralized digital grid may increase energy efficiency in the years to come. First, let me introduce my guest. Peter Kelly Detweiler is an energy expert. He has worked to solve some of energy's best problems around the world and throughout the U.S. Today, he is the co-founder of Northbridge Energy Partners, LLC, an independent consulting organization with expertise and perspective on U.S. energy markets, and author of the book, The Energy Switch. With a 30-year career in energy, Peter has developed a background in both electrical markets and end-use technologies. This gives him unique and valuable insight into the interplay of technology on both sides of the meter. I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here, John. So, Peter, you're an author, you're a speaker, you educate people about uh, the confluence of digital technology and, you know, the grid. There's just so much <laughs> we can talk about uh, uh, on the, in, in this conversation because of your background and what you do. I, I want to start with just talking about energy innovation over the last 10 years or so. You have an extensive career in energy development, writing and education, and you've worked uh, in the U.S. and in Africa. We've, we've been in Africa, too, and beyond. I, I just want to know how you got your start. How did you get started in this, this, this industry? You know, I used to work in developing countries, development economics. So I have a degree from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy in economics. And I spent time, for example, in Mogadishu, Somalia's Ministry of Finance in 85, and then 86, 87, 88, I was working for Catholic Relief Services around the mm -hmm. world and their audit staff, and then in Ghana. And um, well, my wife and I were there, and we'd just gotten married. A difficult pregnancy brought us back to the States. And I had a friend who was working in clean tech, clean energy, and I'd always been interested in that space. So mm -hmm. I made the big jump from working in developing countries to getting involved in energy. And my first client, through a consulting firm I started working with, uh, were the Cree Indians of northern Quebec that were fighting massive uh, mega hydro projects on their territories up in northern Quebec. And so I just learned from this really brilliant guy who was my boss, and he would could outthink the world, but he didn't like to write. So I would do all the writing for him, and I just learned by sitting at the seat of the master. And then just way led on to way, and here I am 30 years later. I mean, there's there's a incredible demand for if a more efficient, secure, and reliable grid. Um, it's actually sort of central conversation in just about everything that I've seen. I just came back from a, a big solar and wind conference, and we're, t we're, we're talking about efficiency, security, and reliability. You know, I, I think if you look at your book, uh, you say that, you know, that conversation is, 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 is apropos, right? The energy trans transformation will ultimately involve tens of trillions of dollars of investment and pretty much uh, impact every aspect of society. And this transition to a clean energy future will dwarf 
the Industrial Revolution in scope and magnitude. That's a pretty bold statement. Um, in your, in, in other words, where do you think this investment is needed today? Why do you think it's so big? And how does it relate to efficiency and security and reliability of the grid? Sure. Well, if you step back and say, first of all, what's the inherent problem we're trying to solve? There's the yeah. three Ds, but decarbonization, digitalization, decentralization. The two latter, the digitalization and decentralization, are sort of natural outgrowths of technology. But the first mm -hmm. part, the decarbonization, that's essentially humanity steering our ship, our collective society, in a different direction than we have in the past. So back in the Industrial Revolution, there's a relatively small number of players in the space, and we were smaller in, in terms of numbers as a species versus now where we're you know, closing in at some point in the future on 10 billion of us. And we've got to decarbonize everything in order to keep temperatures from exceeding, say, two degrees centigrade, which was what, you know, the Paris Accord was looking at. Now people are saying, scientists, maybe it has to be 1.5. Putting that in perspective, Don right. Rudler, who's the chief scientist who wrote the National Climate Review that was delivered to the Trump administration, I was at a conference where he spoke and he said, what's a couple degrees centigrade? He goes, flip it the other way. Cool the earth 60, six degrees centigrade. And we were in Chicago when he was saying this. Where would we be? And we all looked at each other in kind of, you know, confusion. He says, we would be sitting under probably a half a mile of ice sitting in the middle of the Laurentian ice age. That's how much six wow. degrees can mean in one direction. So you warm up the planet two or three to four degrees in the other direction. You create massive instability. Many parts yeah. of Africa and other places are simply not habitable anymore. So you create massive potential for human migration flows. I mean, we're looking at 2 million people crowding into Poland right now out of Ukraine, which is going to, and other parts of Europe. That could be nothing compared to what happens within the next few decades if we continue to destabilize our climate. So we are in a, a race, which many people are still not fully aware of, to push the carbon atom out of our industrial processes, out of our personal processes, heating homes, lighting our homes, driving our cars, everything. And so there are some estimates, this will be north of $100 trillion between now and 2050 in terms of the changes in business models, investments in electric vehicles, maybe modular nuclear, certainly more solar, wind, batteries, hydrogen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, this thing is absolutely staggering in the scope and scale of what we're trying to accomplish. Incredible. You know, you alluded to Poland because we're recording this in the midst of uh, politics and economics and so forth. You know, the Russians have invaded Ukraine. It's really sort of, to some extent, re-energized the conversation around the carbon transition, right? So energy security. Any perspectives on that? It's not meant to be a political comment, more about sort of like, does this, does this refresh our perspective on the role of energy in society? You know, I think it does, because if you, first of all, if you, um, I love the, the phrase I heard one time, you can't embargo sunshine or wind, right? So right. so you can, in theory, we, we can drill baby drill in this country for a while because we have prodigious quantities of hydrocarbons here. Yes. Um, natural gas, for example, might last us to another hundred years um, based on what's in the in the shales that we could potentially frack. But at the end of the day, it's about cost effectiveness. And it is about energy security. And what we find is right now we import most of our oil from Canada, but then mm. uh, Mexico is about 8%. And indeed, Russia is about 8%. And 
And Russia uh, exports, well, Europe is about 60% of its hydrocarbons, according to something I saw today from the Energy Information Administration. So it becomes right. abundantly clear that if we don't want to rely on certain countries and systems of governance that are hostile or certainly antithetical to our belief in human freedom and democracy, we need to be mm -hmm. more thoughtful about the energy economy we're shaping. And so renewables tie right into that because, first of all, the, the fuel is free. So what that means is all the other investments are either the upfront capital investments or the human resources that we bring to the table. So it gives us much more control over the direction of our own economy. So just from that physical security perspective, it's a, it's a winner that way. Now, that isn't to right. say that global trade isn't helpful in many areas. It's just that when you start to bring in these geostrategic pieces, like we're seeing right now, uh, there's an extra layer over whether, you know, something else that we might be trading that's more generic. So I think we do have to be more thoughtful and more cognizant of the fact that energy flows are critical to national security. Indeed. You know, Peter, I, I'm a, I'm a software guy. I like to say I'm not an energy guy. I, I, I came from into the industry about four years ago. I've been on a fast learning curve trying to understand every aspect of it. But I can tell you that before uh, I came into the energy business, I never thought of the grid as a digital technology or having any relationship to digital technology. And uh, you spent a great deal of your time teaching people about the fact that there is a overwhelming, you know, rapidly increasing confluence between IT and the grid. Can you tell us how, perhaps giving us a tour over the last decade, how you make the case that that's happening? Oh, sure. So first of all, the grid is now a cyber physical being, entity, right? And so mm -hmm. we've always had in our old traditional utilities, we had a supervisory control and data acquisition, a SCADA system, which was an industrial control system that controlled mm -hmm. our power plants and our bulk power system, transmission, transformers, all that. What's new now, though, is we start to develop this grid edge. You know, you have a more than a million uh, rooftop solar arrays in a place like California. You're starting to see, again, in a place like California or Hawaii, in Hawaii now, 80% of the new solar panels that go in have batteries attached. California, certain areas at 60%. New York's going to start to see a pop in that area. Massachusetts, other places around the country, then electric vehicles right. and so on. Now, the critical piece is, and vehicles are simply batteries on wheels conceptually, um, mm -hmm. power and the cost of power and the challenge of power is about how much, where it's located, and then duration, right? So it's a kilowatt. Where is that kilowatt? Where do you need it? And then how, how long do you need it? Kilowatt hours. So it boils down to location and then just tons of data around the where, the what, the how long, and at what price. And prices right. can be super variegated. Like Texas has thousands of prices in the grid at any given time based upon location and constraints of transmission, getting power from point A to point B. So now you start to bring in all these end-use devices that mm. are responding to market conditions. And first of all, you've got to monitor them all the time and know that they're there. And then mm -hmm. you start to activate them. So that Ford F-150 Lightning, that, that's 110 kilowatt hour battery or 150 kilowatt hour, to put that in perspective, the average mm. home uses about 30 kilowatt hours per day. So that mm. one pickup truck could power a home for, say, three to five days and indeed is capable of doing so. 
So this past week, Pacific Gas and Electric announces they're going to work with Ford to figure out ways to make that vehicle interact with the grid and stabilize the grid. And so fast forward to a future where the F-150 is roughly 5% of all the vehicles sold in this country, 900,000 a typical year of the 17 million cars sold in the U.S. Imagine a whole bunch of those, plus a whole lot of other vehicles, electrified, charging at certain times, releasing power and a bidirectional flow back into the grid at other times, and water heaters, rooftop solar, batteries. Pretty soon you're talking about potentially billions of transactions across the United States. One utility like Pacific Gas and Electric, they estimate maybe four devices per household with 5 million households. So there's 20 million devices. So pretty soon you get all kinds of power flowing both ways. You got to monitor all that stuff. This becomes one of the biggest data plays in the world in order to effectively manage the grid and to make it as efficient as we can. Because one other piece, John, the grid is sized right now for the maximum demand. It'd be like if we said anybody who wants to fly on Thanksgiving can jump on a plane and we're going to build the airplane fleet to accommodate all those travelers, even though the rest of the right. year we're only going to fly those planes half full. The grid's right. like that. It's sized for peak demand, those hottest days when air conditioning is running. And instead of telling people to shut off stuff, we say we'll build the grid bigger. So it's only utilized at a 50% average capacity factor. Now, mm-hmm. if we can harness all those distributed devices to change the way we consume power, store power at periods of time, release it at other times, the top 1% of demand in the grid, if we could reduce or eliminate that top 1% of peak demand, like 80 hours of peak, we could mm-hmm. save roughly 8 or 9% of our total infrastructure costs. So as we build the wow. grid out, in the future, if we can make it more efficient, we can reduce everybody's costs, and it will be built out. Uh, the CEO of the Electric Power Research Institute recently commented that if the Biden energy plan were implemented to decarbonize the U.S. economy, we would have to triple the size of today's power grid. So if that yeah. indeed happens, it's incumbent upon us to figure out how to use data, better architecture, and harness all these devices to make a more efficient cyber physical machine going forward in the future. It's a huge challenge, but it's also an enormous opportunity if we do it right. Peter, I love that. If I, if I can play it back. So, um, I mean, the grid of the past, you know, was sort of assuming it's got demand for the power, right? It's got dispatchable data centers, so, green, you know, not green powered facilities, uh, fossil fuel facilities that come on and stay on and they, they tell them when to come on. And you've kind of got this dumb user, basically, to some extent on the other, on the, on the other end. It's just a one-way relationship. But once you start to change the mixture of the grid to have more intermittent resources, distributed energy resources, so solar, solar panels on the roof, batteries as part of that architecture, there can now be a two-way relationship between the grid and the consumers or the demand, if you will, such that those resources can actually become grid-level resources, right? So it's a, and it introduces more flexibility into the grid, and then therefore, you need more than just a simple SCADA system turning things on and off. You're you're, you're now developing a much more sophisticated system that needs to have brains to figure out how to manage and architect and model and project out, you know, the the use of those different technologies. I find that fascinating because uh, you're right. I mean, these, these new electric cars, 
I mean, if you plug them all in or you plug them in or you, or you know when they're going to be plugged in, you can use an AI machine to sort of determine when to charge them. And then that, that's a resource for the grid. And, you know, there's lots of discussion around this concept of a virtual power plant, right? Where all of those batteries wake up at some point and the grid needs more power and puts it back to the, that's the, you know, power is coming back <laughs> to the grid on a, on a schedule or a dispatch. That's potentially very powerful and introduces the, the, the need for more than just physical infrastructure. Now you need digital infrastructure to control that, right? Is that a good way to summarize? Uh, Indeed, you have you have uh, encapsulated that quite well. And then there's one more piece of that, which is mm -hmm. today we're talking about gasoline prices that you know was three dollars a gallon maybe three weeks ago, and now it's four fifty, right? So everybody's yeah. complaining, rightfully so, about a fifty percent increase. Think about mm -hmm. electricity in a place like Texas when they had that freeze last year. The average price in Texas before the freeze had been around 3.3 cents a kilowatt hour, the wholesale price for electricity. Right. When that freeze occurred for those four days, the price of electricity pegged out at $9 a kilowatt hour. So almost 300 yeah. times. So imagine mm -hmm. if gas prices, instead of you know $3, were $900 a gallon. That's what can happen with electricity. So because there are these potentially big price swings, now Texas basically cuts their costs down, has limited the price to a $5,000 cap. Right. But that's the kind of price volatility. There's no other commodity on the planet. Therefore, it really makes sense to digitize these devices and make them market aware so that they respond. You, you're sort of alluding to my next question, which is just business models, right? So if you look at the grid, it's grid makes power or utilities make power, power plants make power, consumers buy the power and there's a very simple relationship there. What new business models do you see sort of popping up now in this new digital world, right? So now one example you touched on is not only can I buy the power, I can actually sell the power back, right? <laughs> um, what else are you seeing out there? Yeah. So the first ones we saw were the solar companies coming in and basically before solar was dominated by these solar companies. There wasn't a lot right. of it going on because they hadn't solved the financing problem. And solar panels, 20, 30,000, $40,000 for decent sized installation on the home. Yeah. Then they came in and said, oh, we'll be the financial intermediaries. So we'll buy the panels and we'll lease them to you or sell you power under power purchase agreement. And for a right. while, 80% of all new solar coming in in places like California, Massachusetts, other markets was third-party finance. So that's wow. been around now. Those companies are starting to move into storage. You see a company like Generac that used to just do backup generation. Now they're buying batteries and putting those in. You see inverter companies, the devices that take the solar or the battery, DC power, and drop it into the AC grid, converting it into alternating current. So now the inverter companies start to buy batteries. So you start to see this convergence of uh, companies building these things and then creating these virtual power plants. So they reflect in one direction and create value for the customer. Then they turn around in another direction, aggregate those devices and sell to the utilities or to the wholesale market. Mm. And the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the federal regulator just promulgated a rule a year and a half ago that told all of the competitive markets, they have to create operating models that compensate vendors of distributed devices that are aggregated to 100 kilowatts, that right. they have to be treated like any other wholesale asset in the marketplace. So now you start to see, oh, okay, mm -hmm. now there's price formation capability. So you now mm -hmm. have, for example, uh, electric 
school bus operator is saying, oh, our buses are going to drop kids off or pick them up in the morning from six, drop them into the school, six to nine. Then the bus will go dormant and sit in the lot. And then one o'clock, go, you know, go to the school, drop the kids off between then and four. So a place like California, what's going to happen? The buses will absorb all the energy from the sunlight in the middle of the day when there's already so much of it, the prices sometimes go negative. Then in the evening, when prices go sometimes double or more, and all these power plants have to ramp up to serve evening load, they have to double the amount of generation in California from, say, four to nine. The buses can release power and make money, and then they'll charge Mm -hmm. a little bit in the morning, say three or four before they pick up the kids, and then they'll use energy dropping off the kids. Then they'll absorb that from the sun the next day and keep doing it. So you're starting to see all the school buses, Thomas, Bluebird, BYD, et cetera, all announce bi-directional capable buses so power can flow in both directions. You're starting to see business models like Fermata, which is a company that does vehicle to grid. They announced this summer that a Nissan Leaf in Burlville, Rhode Island, had a water treatment plant, delivered energy from the battery to the plant so the plant didn't have to buy it from the grid in a demand response type program. That single Mm. Nissan Leaf made $4,200 this summer. And a school bus in Massachusetts, in Beverly, Mass., one school bus participated with National Grid, the local distribution utility, 50 times this summer and delivered three megawatt hours of energy back to the grid. So you're going to start to see all these new constellations of devices and vendors architecting these solutions. And the real critical piece of that, John, is if you've got a whole bunch of different players and they're not coordinating what's happening between distribution utility, wholesale market operator, you know, the grid operator and the vendors to create the necessary situational awareness, especially when power is flowing in both directions, which it didn't used to do, we're going to have some real challenges. So we have to migrate the intelligence out to the grid edge and then probably create some kind of permission-based approach so that everybody who needs to see the data with the requisite latencies, the speed with which they need to see it, can tap into that and pull it into their systems that can automate most of the behavior and decisions necessary. And it's all got to be super cyber secure. I mean, I've heard these companies that are sort of pooling these types of resources together, and then they turn around and do a much larger scaled contract with the grid, these kinds of virtual power plants and so forth. And then they build all the technology you're talking about that collects the data and sends, you know, customized devices to those those different endpoints so it can collect the data and you know we know how much storage is available or power is available etc i think that's uh it's it's fascinating and also interesting how that's all being added retroactively like you know we're 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 coming back to a you know a legacy infrastructure and adding all this cool new tech and digital <laughs> I, I suspect iot is part of that as well right yes very much so yeah yeah i mean i i think that um you know the the, the whole concept of energy efficient systems at at scale and how that can fit into the consumer market, right? And have the consumer market to some extent or or the yeah, the, the energy consumer market essentially participate almost as a wholesale provider in the electrical system is something that that that's going to be exciting to see, right? Where you know that that electric car can actually have you earn some money, <laughs> right? Uh by participating in things that would only be the domain of uh, of large, you know, grid scale companies and so forth. What what other new technologies or innovations are you excited about in, in the energy space? You know, I so uh, you can probably 
decarbonize about 50 or 60% of the grid with the renewables we're bringing on, the, the utility scale wind and solar, the rooftop solar, and then lithium ion batteries, say four hours of duration. But once you get beyond that, it gets harder because you have to shift large amounts of energy from say one month to the next when it's not as sunny or you're after dealing with a week's worth of rain in California. So then the mm -hmm. question is, how do you get to that next mile? That's where you start to see some really interesting technologies. So for example, first of all, modular nuclear. Um, last week or the week before, XL Energy, the utility in Colorado, Minnesota, announced it signed a letter of intent with NuScale, the modular nuclear reactor, and uh, its first project, which would be around 400 megawatts at Idaho National Labs in Idaho Falls, slated somewhere around the end of this decade. And they, they may be the operator. So modular nuclear mm -hmm. is kind of interesting because you build all the little nukes in a, in a factory. And then right. you ship all the parts by rail or by truck and install them on site. So you don't have the potential for cost overruns like you do with these serially constructed massive plants like the one in Georgia that the Elvin Vaudel plant that started at $14 billion price tag is now at 30 billion and six years wow. behind schedule. So modular nukes may make it, although the price right now is they're shooting for $58 a megawatt hour. And you compare that to wind and solar, which can come in in the $30 per megawatt hour range. Now, granted, they're not dispatchable. They only show up when the wind blows and the sun shines. But still, there's a little bit of a heavy lift there. But And then also hydrogen. Like last week, one company announced that they're looking at 60 gigawatts, 60,000 megawatts of hydrogen in Texas. To put that in perspective, the entire Texas grid right now, the installed nameplate capacity of all the machines that can generate, equals 86,000 mm -hmm. megawatts. So 60,000 for this you know, new green hydrogen thing, building 60,000 megawatts of renewables and then putting electrolyzers in and then making hydrogen, storing it in up to 50 underground salt caves and then using it for industrial applications and powered, you know, hydrogen to power the grid and so, and, and maybe trucking, et cetera. There are uh, about a half a trillion dollars worth of announced hydrogen projects around the world right now. So that one has a potential, but bearing in mind the energy losses, if you take the raw energy from a windmill and a solar panel and whatever else, and then use right. it with electrolyzers to break water into hydrogen and oxygen, then compress or liquefy that oxygen and then move it someplace and then put it through a fuel cell or a generating plant, you lose almost two thirds of the raw energy that went in. So we have to be mm. really cognizant of those efficiency losses and the economics there, which means we need really cheap electrolyzers, we need really cheap renewables, and we need a scaled system. But you know, we may get that. The US government just announced $9.5 billion worth of uh, grants or incentives for four national hydrogen hubs to help scale this thing and drive the volumes up and the cost down because really the long-term hope for decarbonizing the economy right now seems like it's going to eventually be tied into that H2 molecule. Wow. That's, yeah, I've been reading a lot about green hydrogen and uh, we did a podcast uh, last season where we, we really dug into all the other different colors of hydrogen that are being developed and and why there's so much excitement around that because of its ability to affect so many aspects of the broader economy, right? And how we make things and, and reducing carbon. Uh, Peter, I want to go back to demand response for a second. So you spent some time at Constellation New Energy and you developed this demand response unit, right? What was that development process like and 
And when you look at the future role of, you know, demand response in this distributed way you talked about, is that scalability enough? Because when, when I look at the IEA report on 2030, um, they're talking about 500 gigawatts of demand response in order to absorb the amount of renewables we have planned. I want to get your sense, having sort of built programs before, how you see architecting a scalable demand response program to allow us to integrate as much of the green energy as we're planning. Sure. There was a little bit of DR already when I came on uh, with some paper mills in New England, but we essentially, I had a great team. I had 35 really talented, dedicated people. We essentially built our capability in-house to about 850 megawatts of dispatchable load, which would be a decent sized nuclear plant, one unit in a nuclear plant. Then we mm-hmm. bought sea power and essentially doubled our size. But most of that, John, was us calling up a customer with, say, two hours of lead time saying, you got to shut down for six hours, maybe three times a year, maybe five times a year. Contractually, it was different. But these were formal programs with the grid operators, the independent system operators, the regional transmission operators. That's kind of like the baby steps of DR because it proved that there were elastic responses, customer responses with respect to price, changing behavior with respect to price. But that's really sort of the baby steps, you know, the training wheels. Um, When Chairman Jatterjee announced in October of 2020, I believe it was, FERC Order 22, he commented on that. He he cited two studies, uh, one of them at 60 gigawatts of flexible resource capability, another one at 380 gigawatts. Now, to put that in perspective, our grid had last year around 1,177 gigawatts of installed capacity in the whole grid. So, Mm. and he he commented it's a small, but quote, mighty resource. Now, the real challenge is, so those flexible assets are out there, the water heaters, the electric vehicles, all that stuff. The question is, how much of it is cost-effectively capable of being marshaled? Uh, and then how right. do we make sure, again, that we have that data system to make it happen? But let's let's take one example. So many, many homes in this country have water heaters. And it's basically a giant thermal battery. We use electricity and we have a resistance heater. So we put the electricity through a wire that doesn't like it and resists it and creates heat that warms up the water. And nowadays, most of the time, we heat up that water without regard to when we heat it and the impact it's having on the grid. In theory, we could actually um, go quickly on, off, on, off, and provide even frequency regulation, like fast response services that the grid needs, devices responding really quickly to that 60 hertz of frequency in the grid by doing or not doing something. Now, the problem is, it's very difficult to do it cost effectively in a retrofit situation because you got to go and talk to all the customers and then put a device right. in that governs the behavior of that water heater. On a go forward basis, though, there's only half a dozen major water heaters in this country. So we could, for example, equip them all the same way an iPhone has like a USB port or something, right? And say, we're going to make these all grid capable. So the real challenge right now is, yeah, there's plenty of these devices, but the question is, how do we break them down into the subsectors? How much of it is going to be retrofit activity versus how much of it is go forward new tech that we can quickly make grid DR, grid flexible capable? Ultimately, if you right. fast forward, say, 10 years, water heaters only last about a decade or a decade and a half. So you could roll out that population, you know, turn it over. 
So part of the challenge is as quickly as possible, start to build these new capabilities in, in anticipation mm -hmm. of the value they can create for society. And there's a bifurcation here, which is that most end use devices, well, all end use devices, they weren't built to service the grid. They were built to do something else, to warm a house, cool a house, heat right. water, do something. Cars, exactly. electric vehicles, move people around. Batteries themselves are quite different though. They were designed specifically to absorb or release power. So you're starting to see programs like in Hawaii, they're now paying customers who put batteries in with their solar panels and they're paying them a really good tariff in the evening to deliver energy back to the grid. So batteries are a completely different subset than harnessing all these other end uses for the DR that we need. I think there's a lot of potential here, um, but I think we need to take a very holistic view. FERC order 2222 will help that because the mm -hmm. grid operators very soon have to come back with their operating models. Then there will be some tussle with the distribution utility saying, well, we need more visibility into what's going on. And at some point there will be some kind of a politically palatable settlement. And then this thing will start to move forward. Once the rules of the road are clear for vendors, I think they'll ramp up and amp up their capabilities and then obviously all the manufacturers need to make these devices capable from the get-go so they can play in this grid in the future. Got it. Yeah, it's I get your point. It's it's hard to take these existing consumer products or consumer infrastructure products and sort of turn them into smart devices. But if you understand where the grid is going, I mean we've heard things like grid one, grid two, grid three, grid four, you know, like this this whole evolution of what the grid is and the definition of it then you can start building the end units differently and incorporating technology to support their participation in a, in a more flexible grid. And that's how you, you feel we get to the scales that we need is what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think you really have to, to, with all the new devices, as soon as possible, make them grid flexible capable. So you spend a lot of time educating folks on the transition. Um, we talked about it before. It's kind of the pre-call they're just getting more people involved in the in the energy industry is really central to what you do, and you use education as your superpower to do that. How do you stay informed? You talked about reading lots of different things. How do you stay connected on the latest and you know the bleeding edge of what's happening in the, in the industry? Yeah, I have thirty last count. I think thirty two newsletters that I get. Thirty uh, two. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So like the first one comes in at three o'clock in the morning from Europe called Electrive, and it's just it's maybe ten or fifteen EV and battery stories. And then I have you know the Canary Media and Utility Dive, right. and then I have there's a National Energy News and Northeast Energy News, a Western Energy News, and then there's a whole bunch of battery specific newsletters that I get, and some solar specific mm -hmm. newsletters, and some wind ones, and so on. So I probably look at 250 headlines a day and then figure out which ones matter. And every once in a while I see something go, oh, John, I gotta, I gotta spend the next two hours or three hours going into this document on hydrogen. And then uh, the other yeah. thing I, so I, I have 1900 URLs that I've collected over the last say 10 years so that right. I know where stuff is. And I know when this report's gonna come out and that report's gonna come out. And then I've also clipped thousands of slides because if someone wants a, a presentation or a keynote on solar, I go to my solar file, I cruise through all those slides, I create my narrative there. If it's renewables or whatever, I'll grab the wind, the solar, the offshore wind, the storage, and so on. So it's it's really about knowing where things are, when they're going to come out, 
and understanding which ones are worth paying attention to, what story moves the needle and which one doesn't. And then each week I put a video together, a five minute video of energy stories from around the world. I've tweeted them out all week long, and then I'll go and grab the five to eight most important tweets that I think move the needle from a business model perspective or some new technology thing. And then I put that video out on LinkedIn and Energy Central platform. And I have not that many people, a thousand people maybe that watch the video each week, but it keeps, it forces me to integrate all that information and think about what really mattered in the week that just happened. Well, this has been a fascinating uh, conversation, Peter. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. I want to drop into our lightning round part of our conversation here. I'll just ask you a series of questions that may or may not relate to energy at all. My first question for you is, so you've lived through the pandemic the last two plus years, like all of us. What's the one thing you think that's changed permanently since the since that period? Um, I think our digital presence, the, the conversations you and I are having now, the Zoom calls, that sort of thing. I think those, yeah. we'll still have physical meetings, but I think we're now so comfortable with these programs. My guess is we have a lot of initial physical meetings and then say, oh, the next ones we're going to do via Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever, um, because right. we don't want to fly around the country that much and spend that much time on planes and in airports. So I think yeah. that physically shifts. Uh, how about predictions? We're recording this in 2022, um, entering the spring slowly but surely. Uh, what would your predictions for the next year be? Anything you'd like to, you'd really love to see come true uh, this coming year? No, I mean, obviously a resolution of the Ukrainian situation that just sits heavy in all of our hearts. But yeah. assuming that that's resolved, I would like to see uh, more maturity around the climate conversation. It still troubles me how immature and politicized this conversation is around such a critically important issue, which, I mean, I'm 61. It's it's going to impact the later years of my life, but I look at my kids and, you know, potentially the, their children and just think, what kind of a world are we willing to leave them? And when are we going to start making these trade-offs in a way that demonstrates a little bit more love than we're showing right now? Do you think that political um, dynamic is an education problem or religious problem? <laughs> I think it's a religious problem. And, and I'll tell you yeah. why, because there are friends of mine who sit in another political persuasion and they don't want to be educated. Thank you so much, Peter. This has been very illuminating. I don't think it'll be our last conversation. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I had a great time. I really appreciated the opportunity to chat with you. You can find more information on what you heard today in our show notes. To learn more about Saluna and our innovative projects, visit our website at salunacomputing.com or visit our blog, Clean Integration on Medium. To join our growing community, connect with us on LinkedIn by searching for Saluna and following our company page or tag us on Twitter. We're at Saluna Holdings. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you for listening to Clean Integration, a Saluna podcast. And remember, computing is a better battery.